I invite you now to turn with me to the book of Hebrews, the ninth chapter. Hebrews 9, we'll begin reading at verse 1 and read down through verse 14. Hebrews 9, 1 through 14. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet open, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, that deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of, a defiled, of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? This is God's Word. Let us pray. And now, our Father, we ask that by your Spirit and according to your promise, that you attend now the preaching of your word. Take what is spoken this day. May it be for the comfort of your people, for the conversion of those who do not know you. May we see the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So here we find ourselves on the post-Thanksgiving weekend. 
Some of us never want to see a turkey again. Others are dreaming of that last piece of pie they've hidden in the back of the refrigerator to have after lunch today. Many are trying to figure out what went wrong with their self-control, maybe feeling a little bit guilty about the volume of food consumed. Here are some rules I read about such things. If you eat something and no one sees you eat it, it has no calories. If you drink a diet soda with a candy bar, the calories in the candy bar are canceled out by the diet soda. When you eat with other people, calories don't count if you don't eat more than they do. Cookie pieces contain no calories. The process of breakage causes calorie leakage. None, of course, now of course, no, no, that's true. We usually end up feeling guilty because we've tried to modify or manipulate the system to somehow cover ourselves, our excesses. But it's not just over things like diets that we struggle with guilt and our conscience. In fact, in essence, those are minor things. We do the same kinds of things with the law of God, the Word of God, the matter of living before God. Because we have this horrible thing, we think at times, called conscience. And it bothers us. The unbeliever does what he can to either still his conscience or ignore his conscience or in some way satisfy and silence his conscience. And sometimes he does that by being religious. But being religious never actually resolves the problem. The author of Hebrews wants the readers to understand that they can have a clean, clear conscience. But it will not happen if they go back into Judaism. It only happens through what Christ has done. Now, you may remember the theme of these messages in Hebrews, the greater, better covenant. And I hope, as you've listened, you're grasping that theme. Now, in the last couple of weeks, you've heard Pastor Willis talk about Hebrews 7, large chapter. And the essence of that text, because humans could only produce death, there had to be a new priest appointed by God one after the order of Melchizedek, and many of you have spent an awful lot of time on Melchizedek trying to figure that out. By the way, when you come to things in Scripture that puzzle you, it is good to start there and track why and figure those things out. That never does you harm. But it's only by this great priest Jesus that we're given what's necessary to produce life. The eighth chapter on the new covenant. Even though we have this new priest, we don't see him now, and we actually don't see the covenant per se. It's not like having the tablets of stone. And yet he mediates, and through his priesthood and his covenant, we have a much better hope. Not merely earthly, but heavenly. 
Now, part of the challenge, admittedly, of understanding the book of Hebrews is the Old Testament background, which forms the basis for the author's arguments. He especially refers to the book of Leviticus. And I'm I'm about to give you an idea here, folks. If you would like to make your fortune in evangelical circles today, write a useful devotional book out of the book of Leviticus. I can tell you nobody has done that. I'm not saying it can't be done. I'm not mocking the book. I'm saying that most of us don't spend much time reading Leviticus. In fact, I have never had anyone tell me their favorite book in the Bible is Leviticus. Now, you may be the first, but that's typically not what happens. This challenge of understanding the background in the Old Testament makes the entirety of the New Testament much more readable and understandable, but especially a book like Hebrews. The author is trying to explain some things that are very important. The background in the Mosaic Law with its pictures of the tabernacle and priesthood and Day of Atonement. S. Lewis Johnson talks about it this way. He says this is really in this ninth chapter very much about the backdrop of Day of Atonement. Israel's Yom Kippur, the day that Hebrews call simply the Yom, the day, the day of all days, Day of Atonement. And understanding that background and then seeing how it comes to us now in Christ to calm our consciences, to give us peace. Now, what is conscience? Well, I I think I can trust this fellow who describes conscience in this way, John MacArthur. A built-in warning system that signals us when something we've done is wrong. The conscience is to our souls What pain sensors are to our bodies, it inflicts distress in the form of guilt whenever we violate what our hearts tell us is right. Now, that's not all that's involved in conscience, but certainly that would be the core, would it not? That which gives us this sense of right and wrong, that there's something within us that recognizes those categories, what C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity called the category of ought. What ought you to do? What ought you not to do? That all cultures everywhere have that sense. That is the sense of conscience. So how do we deal with our consciences when they accuse us? What are we supposed to do? How do I either silence or in some way satisfy my conscience. The only way you get a clean conscience, the only way you get a clean conscience is through Christ's atonement. Now first consider this. Religious works don't cleanse your conscience. The first ten verses. Now I love this, he says at the end of verse 5, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Well, in one sense, it wasn't all that necessary for the Jewish believers, for they basically knew everything he was talking about. 
There were more elements he could have talked about, but he chose to select only these items. On our part, we don't know these things that well because we've never had a tabernacle. Now, I know some of you say, well, I've been to church camp, and they've got tabernacle at church camp. Not the same thing. Tabernacle in the Old Testament, the movable temple, had you entered the camp of Israel, you would have seen that the 12 tribes were ordered around the tabernacle. Every tribe had a particular place to camp. In the center of the camp would have been the tabernacle, which was uh, made, outer walls were white linen. It was 75 feet wide and about 150 feet long. Had you entered into the tabernacle, the first thing you would have seen was the altar of burnt offering, and that's as far as you got to go unless you were a priest. There you brought your offering. The priest carried out the sacrifice for you. Behind that altar was the bronze laver, or some translated the sea. It was this large basin for ceremonial washing. Then toward the back of the courtyard was the tabernacle proper. This outer court is open to the heavens. It was just a wall, a tent wall, around the area. But toward the back, was the tabernacle proper. The tent there, 15 feet tall, 15 feet wide, 45 feet long. There were three layers of material that covered this tent. There were, inside, there were beautiful tapestries which were covered by two more layers of hides. The insides divided into two rooms. The first is called the holy place, just as the text indicates in Verse 2, it's called the holy place. It had the lampstand on one side and a table of bread of the presence on the other. The lampstand had seven separate holders for light, for lamps. And there were 12 loaves on the table. That was that area. Now, next came the most holy place or holy of holies. Right before it was the golden censer. That was where incense was offered. Inside the Holy of Holies, or the most holy place, Ark of the Covenant. And as the author tells us, inside the Ark, a pot of manna, Aaron's rod which had budded, and the tablets of the law. Then in verses 6 and 7, he tells us about the sacrifices. The priests could only enter the holy place to do their work. This was never a casual thing. It was never for touring. It was never to go in to have personal devotional time. The priests only entered there to labor. Once a year, the high priest could go into the most holy place. He had to wear special garments that day after having taken a special ceremonial washing. The garments were white linen symbolizing sinlessness. Then he placed his hands on a bull and confesses his and his family's sin. Then two goats are selected by random lot, one of them for Yahweh and the other for the scapegoat. The bull is sacrificed. He takes the censer, fills it with two handfuls of incense, makes his first entry into the Holy of Holies. The smoke from the censer is supposed to cover the ark, the top of it, the mercy seat. When he went back out, he takes the blood of the bull, which was the sacrifice for his sin and the sins of his family, and sprinkles that 
on the mercy seat, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, and seven times in front of the Ark. And after that, he comes out, sacrifices one goat, and repeats the process again. When he came out again, he mixed the blood of the bull and the goat and sprinkled it on the altar to cleanse it. He then lays his hands on the scapegoat, confesses the sins of the people. The goats led outside the camp, turned loose in the wilderness. It symbolized the sin of the people being taken away. After that, the high priest removes the special garments, takes another bath, puts on his regular regalia, offers the bull and the goat as burnt offerings. And the remains of them are taken outside the camp and burned. And after all this was done, then you had a celebration. Now, if you're wondering, that whole process took a whole lot longer than the way I just described it. Okay? You're talking a lot of time to do this. And I'd have you pay attention to how he concludes about it in verses 8, 9, and 10. For all of that glory and beauty and pageantry and ceremony and ritual, all it covered Notice what he says, the unintentional sins of the people. Verse 7 at the end, by this the Holy Spirit indicates the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. At the end of verse 9, all these gifts and sacrifices cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but only deal with food and drink, various washings, regulations for the body. Now, folks, pay attention to this. Yom Kippur was aimed primarily at the issue of the unintentional sins of the people. If you intentionally sinned, there were sacrifices you individually were supposed to bring. Even if you unintentionally sinned and figured it out, you were obligated to bring those sacrifices. The sacrifices never ended. From dawn to dusk, Every day, the priests were kept busy receiving and offering sacrifices for the sins of the people. The altar never had a moment when there wasn't smoke rising up from it. There was never a moment in the camp of Israel where the smell of blood and death and burning and incense was not present because the people were sinful. And even all of that on a daily basis was not enough. You had to have the day of days, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, to do the same thing only for the whole congregation and to do it for their unintentional sins. And you had to do it every single year. But it never perfected the conscience. Do you understand what the author's telling you? The way to God was not open. Limited access. The conscience was not clean, clear, perfected, limited efficacy. There was only so much the symbols could do. Now, friend, I say that. You say, well, preacher, how does that help me? We don't have tabernacles. We don't do sacrifices. What in the world? My friend, hear what I'm about to say. Some of you are wired into this idea that somehow if you make enough promises, 
if you take enough resolutions, if you take on enough vows, if you read enough Bible, if you pray enough, if you go to church enough, if you do the enough that somehow this will satisfy God and calm and quiet your conscience. And I'm here to tell you, my friend, you are on a fool's errand that will never, ever satisfy your conscience. It never ends. You can never do enough. You can never pray enough. You can't read the Bible enough. You can't go to enough services. So if religious works will not cleanse and quiet your conscience, then what will? Pay attention to that glorious conjunction in verse 11 at the beginning. But, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. These believers to whom he's writing were already enjoying the benefits of what Christ had done. He now shows what Christ has accomplished. First, what he accomplishes in the presence of God. Through the greater and more perfect tent. And so, well, wait a minute, what tent did Jesus go into? Not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of his blood. He goes on to explain the how, but here's the where. Christ, by his death, through the greater and more perfect tent, he went, entered once for all into the holy places at verse 14, offered himself without blemish to God. Jesus didn't need to go into a man-made tabernacle. He didn't even need to go into the temple at Jerusalem. He, in his dying outside the camp, in a sense, enters heaven itself. And he doesn't enter heaven to run in quietly and then to quickly leave. It's not like he has to sneak in before the throne of the thrice holy God. Rather, he simply opened the way to God. He enters not in a man-made place, but before he who is the Holy One of Israel, he to whom all must give answer and account. And he accomplishes this by a superior sacrifice. Verse 12, by the means of his own blood, and verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience. My friend, hear this. The doctrine of the atonement, of propitiation, of Christ dying as our substitute, offends people. You know, people that, well, if we tell folks they ought to live a certain way, they're offended. If we tell them there are some things that are evil and some things that are good, they get upset. They're offended. Yeah, that does bug them. And there ain't no doubt that we live in a culture today that has no interest in anybody telling them right and wrong. 
good and evil, what you ought to do, what you ought not to do. We not only, again, I'll echo this from another brother, we not only refuse to do what God tells us, we refuse to be what God made us. This is the ultimate rebellion. But I'm here to tell you, my friend, all of that together will pale in comparison to when you tell them the only way they can be satisfactory in the sight of God, the only way God can receive them, the only way that they could ever satisfy God the Father, the thrice holy God, is through the sacrifice of His Son, then they get unbelievably angry. Nobody likes the idea that their good intention their effort themselves is not enough. Michael Horton. Gone is the idea of total depravity. The belief that the glorious creature made in God's own image plunged himself into bondage to corruption, replaced by the idea that the reason Jesus died for us was that he thought we were worthy of it all. And I've heard that nonsense more than I care to imagine over and over and over again. But as Lutheran writer Don Matson argues, that's somewhat akin to telling a serial murderer that he should derive a sense of self-worth from the enormous bail the court placed on him. To see the cross is not to see the measure of how worthy I am, but of how unworthy, shameful, and guilty I am, apart from the imputed righteousness of Christ alone. Hmm. Where he enters, it was not by some animal sacrifice. He enters by right of his own blood. What animal sacrifices could never do, he did. This is part of the imagery of Christ being seated at the right hand of the Father. He enters the very throne room of God, which is somewhat the imagery of the most holy place. He enters the very throne of God, sits at his right hand, because in his dying he has done what is necessary. He represents us. I say this again, friends. You ought not get over this. There is a man in heaven. His name is Jesus. And he bears in his body the marks of his sacrifice. By his death, we are cleansed. By his resurrection, we are justified. And thus the veil of the temple split from top to bottom. The way to God is wide open. But it's only through What does that accomplish? Verse 12, it secures an eternal redemption. And verse 14, purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Wow. Perfect redemption, my sins, placed on another, paid for there. A clean conscience, my sins are paid for. Joyful obedience, I do not obey to be free, I obey because I am free. Albert Speer, 
was once interviewed about the last book he had written. He was on the Good Morning America morning news show. Speer was the Hitler confidant who kept the factories running through World War II. He was the only one of the 24 tried at Nuremberg who admitted his guilt. He spent 20 years in Spandau prison. The interview, the interviewer made a reference to a passage in one of Spears' earlier writings. Quote, you have said that guilt can never be forgiven or shouldn't be. Do you still feel that way? The look of pathos on Spears' face was wrenching as he responded. I served a sentence of 20 years and I could say I'm a free man. My conscience has been cleared by serving the whole time as punishment. But I can't do that. I still carry the burden of what happened to millions of people during Hitler's lifetime, and I can't get rid of it. This new book is part of my atoning, of clearing my conscience. The interviewer pressed the point, you really don't think you'll be able to clear it totally? Spear shook his head. I don't think it will be possible. Friends, hear what I'm about to say. Spear could have had a clean conscience. Do you believe this gospel of Christ dying for sinners is enough that even Albert Spear could know saving grace and know that he was justified in the sight of of God. My friends, if you think that takes grace too far, here I'm about to say, you simply do not understand grace. If God cannot rescue the worst, then grace is impotent. What we gain here is unlimited access to God. Christian, God receives you. He is not angry with you anymore. The relationship is no longer judge to prisoner. It is father to child. He receives you. He receives you for the sake of Christ. Unlimited access unlimited efficacy. Your conscience can be clean and clear, not because you get it all right, not because you atone for it, not because you make up for it, but simply and solely and entirely because you rest on what someone else has done. My friend, this is the gospel. This is good news. Not good advice. Not a, we'll do this and things will be better. I'm hearing, telling you, my friend, based on the authority of Scripture and this text in Hebrews 9, Christ did all of it. Your conscience before God is to be clean and clear. 
your sins atoned for. Horatius Bonner, I lay my sins on Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God. He bears them all and frees us from the accursed load. I bring my guilt to Jesus to wash my crimson stains while in his blood most precious till not a stain remains. My friend, is this your hope? I know you've messed up. You failed. Christian, please understand the Lord knows your failure and he still loves you. He knows you're stumbling and he still loves you. Oh yes, confess your sins, certainly. For the sake of fellowship with the Lord and clearing your heart and conscience, yes, confess. But know this, my friend, you are saved by him. That means you can come to the throne of grace anytime. Guilty, dirty, messed up, fresh out of a sinful rebellion, and he will receive you. And he receives you to be cleansed by Christ and to live then obediently in the joyful freedom knowing none of your works earn you a place. They are simply evidence you've been given a place. Let's pray. Our Father, far too often We swing back and forth. We claim to believe in grace and yet we live like we are bound by works. We fail and we make resolutions to do better. And while it's not wrong, Lord, for us to make effort, In fact, we should make all kinds of effort, give all kinds of energy to pursuing holiness. Lord, save us from the lie that our holiness somehow gains us access. Save us from the lie that somehow we are good enough in our own behavior. The perfection of our confession, the deeds that we do, the changes we work to bring about in our own hearts, that somehow that renders us able to come before the throne. Father, may we never look anywhere except to Jesus. May our conscience be calm and quiet though we not be condemned. But Lord, with that, oh Lord, with that, may we then have glorious, gospel-empowered motivation 
to pursue righteousness. Because we are saved. And because we are received. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand now and sing in response.